Good to see everyone today as we continue our sermon series on the DNA of a disciple. We're talking about seven DNAs that make us to become a disciple of Christ. Uh, we're picking these things all from the book of uh, chapter 15 of the book of John. And as Jesus was teaching, one of his final teaching to his disciples, we see several DNAs, several distinctives of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Last week, we began talking about the first distinctive, and we marked those things by three things, uh, three um, ways to help us. Uh, the first one is this, is that uh, is a journey from earner to become an heir, uh, from journey from being an earner to an heir. So we, every distinctive we talk about is a distinctive that travels from one extreme to another extreme. We're talking about what does it mean to be an earner, to be an heir last week. And we talked about also in terms of action, is the action is we need to trust Jesus. And finally, we gave a mantra every week, hopefully to help you to remember, to remember what we talked about. The mantra last week was that we are worse off than we can ever imagine, that we ever know, but we're more loved than we can ever imagine. We talked about that our, our earning mentality doesn't get us to where we need to be. We might be delusional in thinking that, but in reality, Jesus died for us. His love is so great for us that we will never be able to wrap our head or our hearts around it. And so today, we're going to continue to our second distinctive, to our second journey today, talking about being self-hearted, self-hearted to being soft-hearted. We're going to talk about the journey from being self-hearted to soft-hearted. And, and one of the first things I want to ask you is this simple question. What does a fish know about the water in which it swims all its life? If you were to ask a fish, if you were to ever ask a fish, which I hope you never do it, or if you do it, don't ever talk to somebody else about it, because they will think you're weird talking to a fish. But if you ever ask a fish, what is, do you know anything about the wetness? Do you know anything about the water? I think the answer is simply that they know nothing about the wetness of that person's, uh, of that fish life. The fish would not know any other thing aside from the fact that he, he, it is always living in the water. There's nothing to know. There's no uh, perspective, no, no way for that, per, uh, that fish to know what it means to live in the water because all his life is living in the water. And you see, the same thing is true about us. Because of our sinful nature, we have always, always lived with a heart oriented toward ourselves. Because of a sinful nature, we have always been self-hearted. It was started off from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, created by God in the most perfect of place in the Garden of Eden, yet when given an opportunity, Adam and Eve chose to live their own way. They turned their hearts toward themselves, wanting to eat from the uh, tree of knowledge and good and evil. And as such, because of that sin that fallen into your life and my life, as we continue to look at the New Old Testament and the New Testament, we see by the time we go to Judges, the people will say that the judge, in the time of Judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then we fast forward to the Kings and the Chronicles, King David, the man who is after his, God's own heart. In the same way, David, at that moment, have a moment of weakness, started living for his own self, living for his own lust. He saw Bathsheba out in the corner of his eye on top of the roof. And as a result of that, he called upon his servants to go get Bathsheba. And then he laid with her. 
That's not only through the king. We see history upon history. We go on. By the time the people of God get kicked out of the promised land, the foreign king Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember the series that we have in, chap- uh, in, the, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, you know what he did when he was looking around this great palace, this, this, upside, uh, this upside down garden, this uh, kingdom that he had built. King Nebuchadnezzar said this, is this not this great Babylon that I have built by my power as a royal resident and for the glory of my majesty? Fast forward after the exile, when the people get to go back to the promised land, God restored them back. You know what happened? God told them to build a city and a temple back again. But here's the thing. Immediately, they start living with their self-heartedness again. The prophet Haggai tells us and, and could, could rebuke the people of God and said, Is it a time for you yourself to dwell in panel houses while the house of God lies in ruin? Fast forward to the New Testament. Things didn't change at all. In the gospel. Remember the, the Pharisees, the scribes, Jesus rebuked them. The rich young ruler, Jesus gave him the gospel. And yet when it comes to the moment of response, the rich young ruler said, this is too hard for me because I don't want to give up all that I own. Again, we see self-heartedness. We fast forward to, to Ananias, Sapphira's, and, uh, and Sapphira in, in the book of Acts. They gave the offer, they sold their land and gave some of the money to the apostle, and they kept some for themselves. You see, self-heartedness is hardwired in your life and my life, very much like a fish living in a, a sea of water. We always know, we never know what wetness means because we live in that environment. Today is the same thing as it's always been. The reason why I walk us through quickly through the scripture is because today it is the same exact thing. You and I struggle with self-hardiness. Think about it. Every experience, every relationship we have mold us, shaped us to be self-hardened. Think of the days when you got picked on in the playground. Think of the days when you were not chosen on a team. You start developing this habit of self-preservation. You made up your mind that says, I will never be bullied again. So instead of being bullied, you start bullying other people. You start being the, the mean person such as preserve yourself. But not only that, when we grow up a little older, maybe you got passed up from a job time in and time out because you were not vocal, because you don't flaunt your achievement in front of other people. You don't always pronounce the people, your resume, your achievement, your award. So you know what you started learning to do? I want to start boasting about myself. I'm going to put things on my resume to make sure everybody knows how good I am, how well I do my job, so that no one will pass me up again. But not only that, Perhaps some of, us, some of us are good at school. Some of us are great with our school. Some are great at our job. We start developing the, to rely on ourselves, this, this self-reliance that I can do whatever I set my mind to. So we start relying on our own strength. We start relying on our own wisdom. We start relying on manipulating things to get our way. See, all these things just like a fish. We live in an environment that we're completely unaware of. Completely unaware of the self-hardness that we live in. So the question I want to ask us is this. How can we move from self-hardness all the way to self-hardness toward God? 
Because the reality is that our self-heartedness is standing in the way for us to be soft-hearted toward God. We are hardwired for living for ourselves, but yet the way for salvation, the way to be a disciple is for us, for our hearts to be soft toward God. How do we do that? How do we move from self-heartedness to soft-heartedness toward God? I want to share a story with you, and I want to give you a passage. A story with, this story was written by C.S. Lewis. It's one of the children's story. It is uh, actually on, uh, I just found it, it was on Disney+. Plus. It is one of the stories of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I don't know if you watched it before, or you perhaps read that book before. This story was about Eustace, a very mean, selfish boy that no one really liked for an obvious reason because he is a nasty, mean little boy. But one time he was invited uh, to go on to uh, Prince Caspian's uh, uh, ship with his cousin to visit the islands of Narnia. And along the way, they visited this, one of the islands of Narnia. And what happened was Eustace found a mountain full of diamond, rubies, and golden coins. And so standing up there, he was beside himself thinking, wow, here it is. I've arrived. I am that rich guy that everyone will have to bow before me. I'm better than everybody else. And at that moment, he decided, I'm just going to take a nap. And so after that, I have the energy to enjoy the treasure that I found. But unbeknownst to him, after he woke up from that nap, all of a sudden he realized he was in a dragon's cave. He was in a dragon's cave along with the dragon's treasure and one look at himself, he saw himself. He became a dragon. He became a dragon with thick, hard skin with these knobbly scales all over him. He was disgusted. He was disappointed that he became a dragon himself. His outer appearance started to become, uh, to reflect the inner heart of who he was. Selfish, self-hearted person. Obviously, he was disappointed. Obviously, he was sad. And it was at that time, Aslan, the Lion King of, of Narnia, showed up and brought him to a pool. And he told him to undress. And immediately, what, what Eustace realized was that the, the skin, the scales start falling off. And he was getting excited. So what he does, we start ripping them off. And But what he, he didn't realize is that when he started ripping them off, there's another layer of skin, another layer of scale. There's more scales coming. The harder he rips off, the faster that skin. There's another layer, another layer. What He was finally saddened because he realized there's nothing that he could do to get rid of that scale and skin of a dragon. And he's at that point, Aslan told him, you're going to have to let me do it. You are going to have to let me do this for you. I think the same thing is true for us. There is nothing that we can do to get rid of our self-heartedness. What we really need is we need a new heart. A new heart. We need a heart surgery. We need to take our old heart out and replace it with a completely different, new, brand new heart. So that that heart will become soft-hearted toward God. And Jesus know that that, is, that needs to be the truth. And Ezekiel chapter 36, God through the prophet Ezekiel told us this. That Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Prophesying what Jesus would do for us. Hear what it says. 
and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. See, God knew we can never move from our self-heartedness to self-heartedness toward him unless, unless we have a new heart. You don't need to be a doctor to know that you cannot keep two hearts in your body. A heart surgery requires us to get rid of that old heart and a new heart to be placed inside it. And, and, and Ezekiel told us, when that new heart is in us, instantly we are soft toward God. The ability is given to us. The Spirit of God lives in that new heart of ours. As a result that we can walk, we can be obedient, we can worship, we can, we can walk the way that God intended us for us to live. All because we have a new heart. And so how do we move from being self-hearted to soft-hearted? We need a new heart. And so for every one of us listening to this sermon, if you're, you've never given your heart to Jesus, I want to encourage you to surrender your heart to Jesus. To give your life to Jesus and say, I don't want to live in this way anymore. I didn't know any better because I live in this pool of water all my life. But you tell me today that there's a new way of living. I want that new heart. And I want to encourage you to start placing your trust, giving up your old heart so that Jesus can put that new heart in you. And if that's what you want to do today, just like last week, I want to encourage you. Perhaps last week you feel the urge to do it. You didn't do it. I want to give you another opportunity to go on this link, scan this code, because we want to come alongside to help you discover who Jesus is. This new heart that he can give to you. When you surrender your life, surrender your heart, he promised to give us a heart of flesh. Gone is that hardened heart of stone, but he wants to give you a new heart. So that's how, that's the only way for us to move from being self-hearted to soft-hearted. But I also know for many of us listening, perhaps you have made that choice already. You have made that commitment to surrender your heart to Jesus. You had a soft heart, but as we all know, that soft heart tends to slide back to self-heartedness a lot of time. So the question is, how do we stay soft toward God? How do we stay soft-hearted toward God? How do we continue to maintain a softness to this new heart that God has created in us, put in us? I don't know if you play Play-Doh. My kids love Play-Doh. Uh, if you ever play Play-Doh, you know that if you'll just leave the Play-Doh out for a long time, what happened is that the Play-Doh will just get hardened. We have quite a few uh, um, bottles of those hardened Play-Doh because our kids probably left it out, opened the lid, and just let it sit. And over time, what happened is that soft Play-Doh that I'm holding would eventually just start getting crusty, getting hard. But you also know that the only way for us to keep the Play-Doh soft is continue to play with it, to squeeze it, to mold it, to work it, to apply pressure on it. And that's how we keep this plate of soft, moldable. And I believe this is a picture of how God wants us to keep our hearts soft-hearted. Because the only way for us to get, to maintain a soft heart toward God is for us to obey God. 
So the, the journey starts from being self-hearted to soft-hearted. We do that by surrendering our hearts to God, getting a new heart. And what keeps us soft-hearted is for us to continue to obey God. Every obedience to what God says in our lives, every obedience to Christ is almost like a squeezing, putting pressure, applying, working this Play-Doh so that we can continue to make our hearts malleable, soft, transformable toward God. John 15, Kevin read it for us earlier. There, are, there is a word that's repeated multiple, multiple times beyond just the word abide. It is the word commandments. Let me just read off some of those for you. Verse 10, Jesus said this, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, abide in his love. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You are my friends, verse 14, if you do what I command you. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. I don't think it is a coincidence that Jesus keep reminding of his disciples, those who have soft-hearted because of a new heart in, a, in them, that Jesus keep reminding them these commandments that the, he has given to them. Commandments is not a commandments unless it's being followed and obeyed. The assumption for every disciple is to obey the commandments of Christ. Jesus is telling us, you need to follow my commands. You need to obey my commands because that is the only way for you to stay, stay soft-hearted toward God. But unfortunately, somewhere along the way, knowledge has replaced obedience. In our culture in America and, and even in our Chinese culture, and I would argue in the culture of the world, somewhere along the way, we started valuing knowledge above obedience but yet as we see actually knowledge is incomplete without obedience knowledge in itself does not transform us it is knowledge with obedience is what ultimately changed our lives i have lunch with hannah my wife once a while at her workplace we don't do that as much anymore because of covid but i'm always always shocked she works in a hospital. Every time I pull up to pick her up, inevitably, someone, particularly a, a medical profession, will be smoking. You would think that a medical professional who knows a lot about medicine to, would also know that lung cancer can easily be prevented if you just don't smoke. But yet every time I pull up, there's always someone around the hospital perhaps a doctor or a nurse or a phys uh, 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 physical um, uh, aid that is smoking because of the stress that they're experiencing. Is it the, because they don't know better? I don't know, I would argue that probably not. They all know that smoking is bad, but yet the obedience is not there. That's not the case, you know. That's, the only, that's not the only case. Think about all the gyms, LA Fitness, Think of all the dieting companies that people put money in. The money that they're making, millions upon millions of dollars, is it because you and I don't know that we should exercise? No, I think all of us know that we should eat healthy. We should exercise regularly. And yet these companies are making millions and millions of dollars because we need to pay someone to make us obedient to the things that we know. 
I can think of no one else who has greater, greatest knowledge of God, besides Jesus Christ himself, obviously, than a person of Satan. Satan knows everything about God. Satan perhaps may be the greatest theologian there is. He can parse, he can, he can talk theology, he knows every nuances of every doctrine about God, and yet he was destined to the lake of fire. Not because he doesn't know better, not because he didn't know more, but because he did not obey God. It's no surprise for many of us as Christians. So today we have more access to sermons, to articles, to podcasts, to songs, and we have abundant amount of material and resources about God, and yet, I wonder, do we actually get more to become more and more like Christ than perhaps back in the days when people did not have as much access? You see, knowledge on its own does not mean maturity. But that is not to say we should not study the Word of God, not to have gained knowledge of God. It's simply knowledge on its own is incomplete. In fact, Scripture, Paul says, knowledge on its own actually bring you back to being self-hearted. First Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says this, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. What, it, what that means is that when you just have knowledge without obedience, it makes your heart hard and it makes you make your life about yourself again. The more you know, the less you obey, you make your heart to become hardened, to be self-oriented again. That's why Jesus said, we need to obey his commands. Jesus tells us the greatest commandment is not for us to know God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus did not tell you that the greatest commandment is to uh, learn more about God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In fact, even Jesus did not say the greatest commandment is for you to discover more about me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, love. The Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your all. Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then the question is, how do we love God? Jesus knew that we need to ask that question. So Jesus answered that already. In fact, Jesus answered that in chapter 14 of John before he told his, his followers, his disciples, to obey him. Because Jesus in John chapter 14 says this: You want to love me? The greatest command is to love me and love God. How do we love him? John chapter 14, 15, and 21 says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. How do we love God? How do we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Jesus said, love me by obeying me. Love me by obeying my commands. Love me, don't just know my word, but live my word. Obey my words. So here's the mantra I want to give us to, as we remember this important act of obedience as a disciple of Christ. Last week, we talked about God's love language for us. The mantra is this, God's love language for us is mercy and grace. But our love language back to God is obedience. 
Let me run it back. God's love language for us is mercy and grace. It's something that only God can give us. We cannot love God with mercy and grace because we don't get mercy and grace. God doesn't need our mercy and grace. We are the one who need mercy and grace. Remember last week we said we can earn God's love by our work. But here's what you, if you remember last week we talked about. We cannot be saved by work, but what we're, do, we're called to do, though, we're saved for good works. Now the way of talking about good works is obedience. The only way for us to love God, to say, God, thank you for your love and mercy in my life, is for us to obey God. It's for us to obey him because obedience is an expression of your faith. Obedience is how we show our faith. Obedience is how faith comes alive. Think about this. You go to a doctor, you're sick, and the doctor prescribes some, some medicine for you. You have a choice to make. You can say, I can take the medicine by faith that it will work. Or you can choose not to take the medicine, go to get some Chinese medicine. Where's your allegiance? Where's your faith? Is it in that doctor that you visited? Or is that Chinese doctor? Nothing is wrong with Chinese doctor, okay? Uh, don't email me later. But just for the point of illustration, you are not trusting the doctor that you visited with a prescription. You are trusting somebody else. The same thing is true. See, God prescribed his word for us. See, God's word is not meant to balance. God's word is not supposed to, is not meant to be a burden for us. God's word matters for us because God's word is meant to bless us. God's word is meant for our good. 2 Timothy 3.15 is on the slide. It says God's word makes us wise. Psalm 119 tells us that God's word is lamp to our feet. It's meant to direct us, light to our path. God's word is meant, as First Timothy 3 says, 316, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, it's good for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. It's meant to equip us to do good works. See, God's work is meant for good, and he's giving a good prescription to live our lives that will honor him, and the choice is for us whether we trust in his word enough to obey him. So oftentimes we come before the word of God, and we just look at the word and say, well, this is a good idea. I like what it says on here. So we love to have an opinion about God's word. But what obedience means is instead of you having a good opinion about what God's word says, what obedience really means is you let God's word have an opinion of your life. Instead of studying God's word just for studying, you let the word of God study your life to see if your life actually matches his word. See, obedience means I'm going to do exactly what it said no matter what. I often wonder in my own life, if every single day I just read God's word and just apply it and live the way it tells me to live, how differently my life would be. I mean, try it out for a size. Go to Matthew chapter 5 to 7, chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount, if you just read one verse a day and just apply it and live it, and ask your, ask your parents, ask your family, ask your coworkers and your friends. They will tell you your life is different. See, obedience is what keeps our hearts soft toward God. Obedience accompanied with knowledge is what transforms our lives. So here's the application for you. It's very simply this. That we need to obey whatever, that every engagement in the word of God may it be sermon, May it be Bible study, may it be um, discussion, public response, 
Maybe it be your own devotional time. Don't walk away from the Word of God. Never walk away from an engagement in the Word of God without obeying, without having a step of obedience. When I was in college, uh, one of our leaders during our retreat asked us to read Psalm 119 three times. If you know anything about Psalm 119, it is the longest chapter in, Psalm, in the book of Psalms. It had 176 verses. When he told us to do that for three times, I was thinking, this is a bad idea. We just had lunch. I'm not going to be able to make it through 176 verses without falling asleep. And he gave us a specific, a specific instruction. He told us to do this. Read it through once. Then the second time when you read it, I want you to highlight every single word that means the Word of God. There's commands, there's statutes, there are laws. Every synonym to the Word of God, I want you to highlight it. Then the second time. Go through all 176 verses. Then read it for the third time. This one I want you to do is this. What are you supposed to do with the Word of God? I want you to circle it. And after doing that, this stuck with me for the rest of my life. By simply doing that, I realized most people think of the book, uh, the Psalm 119 is a psalm about the, the importance of God's word. But there's so much more than that. Because if you do what I just, I was told to do, and I challenge you to do that this week, what you will realize is that Psalm 119, beyond just the importance and emphasis, the treasure of the word of God, what is really about is, with that emphasis of the Word of God, how do you obey the Word of God? I believe this is how we obey God. That we are to apply it, live it every single time. Let me just give you an example, a sample of what it looks like. Psalm 119, verse 33, 34. Teach me, O God, the way of your stature. Ah, you are praying, asking God, teach me. Why? How, why, should I, why should God teach you? Here's the reason, that I will keep it to the end. Verse 34, give me understanding. We pray, God, teach me. Give me understanding of your why for the purpose of what? That I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Verse 100, I understand more than the age. I understand more about the, the people who are older than me. Why? So that I can keep your precepts. See, the word of God is meant to be lived out in the 119, Psalm 119 way. So don't ever walk away from the word of God. May it be devotional. May it be a sermon. May it be your small group Bible study. I want to challenge you. I want to give you a practical way of doing this in obeying God. Some of us have been practicing that. It's been effective, and hopefully it will be a blessing for you. I want to challenge you. Every time you come to the Word of God, at the end of your time, I want you to write out this statement, what we call I will statement. Write out what you will do to obey what you just heard from God. Don't get up your seat. Don't walk away from the... Don't close your Bible or, uh, or close your, uh, your Bible lab without writing it down, typing it out, what will you do to obey Jesus according to his word? And I don't mean that every time you need to come up with a statement that I will move overseas to be a missionary. It doesn't have to be big. But every little obedience will help you to take bigger steps of obedience next time. And I want to challenge you, don't just write that I will love God more because you and I know that type of obedience never happened. 
Don't ever write, I will remember. I will be reminded of, I will reflect. The reality is you're not going to do that. Be specific. Be specific what you will do. Be measurable that you actually know that you've done it. If it is to love someone, put a when on there. Put a who on there. Put a what there. What are you going to do to show love to this person by what time? Make it measurable. Make it actionable. Something you actually need to do. Just like the song that we sang earlier. Do not sacrifice something that does not cost you. See, obedience costs us not because we're earning God's love. Obedience costs us because we love God. We love Jesus. We don't want to give Him the leftovers. Make your I will statement a relevant one. Don't say, I will do this 10 years from now. Make it about now, which is the last one. Make it a timely thing. What are you going to do today? Delay obedience is no obedience at all. Every encounter, just imagine with me, every time you come to the Word of God, at the end of this sermon, during our response time, you write down what, you will, what is God placing in your heart that you should do. Don't write what is the easiest thing for you to do. What is God challenging you, calling you to do? Because if you have a soft heart because Jesus is giving you a new heart, I believe the Holy Spirit speaks to you every single time when the Word of God is open. The problem is not the Word of God. It's not speaking. Oftentimes, the, the problem is us not listening. Not listening to what God is speaking to us. Not living out what God is doing. And when you write that I will statement, I want to challenge you. Commit that to the Lord and say, God, I don't have the strength to do it, but I know this is what you call me to do. So strengthen, give me strength, give me resolve to live the way you call me to do. Because that's where strength comes in when we abide in Jesus. So today we're talking about the second journey that we need to make from being self-hearted to soft-hearted. That can only happen when we have a new heart. So you never surrender your heart to Jesus, yet I encourage you, put your trust in Jesus. And for every one of us who have a soft heart, we, we need to remain soft toward God. God's word for us is this, we need to obey. We need to obey him. We need to obey and apply. We need to live out whatever God is giving to our heart because God's love language for us, here's the mantra I want you to remember this week. God's love language for us is mercy and grace, but our love language to God is obedience, obedience to Christ and obedience to his word. I want to end for, uh, with a quote from one of my uh, all-time favorite pastors, and I hope it will be a challenge to you. From Charles Spurgeon, he says this, do what the Lord bids you. Bids mean like what God called you to do what the Lord bids you. Where he bids you, as he bids you, as long as he bids you, and do it at once. Do it at once. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace that is unconditionally poured over us richly. Even when we're sinners, Christ died on the cross, loved us, Simply, we come with our sins, with our unworthiness, and we put our trust in you. You give us a new heart. You give us a new spirit. You give us a spirit that allow us, enable us to obey you. 
So God, I pray this week, I pray that for us every single day that we will show our love to you by obeying you. I pray for the Spirit of God to enable us to obey you every single day, every time we come into the Word of God, every time the Spirit of God illuminates in us the truth of God, the commands you call us to live out. Give us the resolve, give us the ability to obey you even unto death. God, we're thankful for those brothers and sisters in Central Africa Republic. Oh God, what a model for us that they will obey you even forsaking their possessions, even laying down their lives, watching their own kids being kidnapped, wives being raped, Bibles and churches being burned, and as some of them even give up their own lives for you, all because they want to love you, they want to obey you. God, give us that type of love. Lord, help us not to settle. Help us not to just settle for giving you cheap love. Because we know the love you've given us caused your son to die on that cross. So God, as we sing to respond to your word today, God, help us to type out, to write out our I will statement today so that you will be honored and glorified in our lives. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.